the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started with today's discussion, they want to throw out Taylor and I do have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Definitely consider throwing us a buck a month uh, to help if you're enjoying things. We absolutely appreciate that. But today, Taylor and I will be looking at another of Freud's case histories. This time we're looking at the Wolfman. But uh, Taylor, uh, I guess... You might be better at giving us at least like a, the broad strokes of the Wolfman case than I. I mean, I'll, I think maybe I'll, we can kind of start there. All I would do is is briefly kind of give us some of the details that Freud starts the case with, right? Yeah. Just so we have the Wolfman. I don't remember his full name, but I believe his name is. Well, I believe he's of Russian descent. I think is what we learn later in the case, and uh, of fairly wealthy means but with world war one and having to immigrate and some of these other things he kind of like comes in and out of his fortune which will become important later but anyway so he we're told freud tells us that around the age of 18 he gets gonorrhea um, has this infection and comes to see freud several years later because because he basically he can't function um, it's similar to the rat man, right? The, except for the sexual activity earlier, but the rat man, like, um, Sergei Pankiev, I guess is how you pronounce it. Okay. He did write his own history later, right? Freud says up front in the first paragraph, I'm not going to tell the whole story of this man's life, nor would you want to. Right. Um, so it's good that Sergei, the wolf man writes his own case, but, uh, so he gets gonorrhea at 18 and then several years later, he's just, he can't function. He's beset by a kind of blend of, I mean, what Freud wants to say is that at an early age, he has anxiety hysteria related to these phobias specifically centered on, on the wolf, but it's not just, that's really not, not the only animal we'll see that the, there's a constellation of animals. There's a whole menagerie of animals that um, really, have phobic he has phobic tendencies towards but the wolfman is so called because of the his famous dream where he dreams about these six or seven white wolves in in a tree he even drew a, a nice little picture for us but so he he comes to freud he's looking for help and you know we'll learn that freud works with him for several years so this guy's in his early 20s and he's completely dependent. We don't know who is taking care of him at the time. We're not told that, but, you know, Freud kind of intimates that after a few years and with not, not much progress being made, Freud makes this bet or this, he has this idea that 
the Wolfman is clinging to his symptoms and not wanting to give up the what's called the secondary benefits of illness where he yeah. he is enjoying his dependence and you know enjoy um, your symptom he's enjoying a symptom mm-hmm. he's lucky enough to have someone to take care of him even though Freud does say that in between he has been in and out of different sanitaria different institutions right I don't you know we don't really call them sanatoriums anymore but uh or sanitariums anymore but um He's having a rough time, but Freud sees that uh, he's not willing to, you know, he's not really, really to work through the symptoms or the resistances. And Freud makes this ultimatum saying, like, at the end of this next allotted period, you know, that's it. It's over. Uh, And so it's at that point that the Wolfman gets serious and a ton of material floods in. And so that makes the case very strange, right, that that so much accelerates at the very end, but Freud's wager works. So what we're told is what Freud always wants to do, right, is to link the current onset of symptoms of these, these, these hysterical formations. Well, it's not, he's not really hysterical. He's, he's kind of a mixture of phobic and, um, you know, well, that's anxiety hysteria. He's, he's got hysterical symptoms. He's got obsessive compulsive symptoms. He's got phobias. But, he, but uh, with Freud, you always want to go back to the source, right? You always want to go back to childhood and work through childhood memories or memories of the adult looking back at childhood. And it's interesting to see Freud say that it might be ideal to work with a child at the moment, at the height of their, of their neurosis, right? Three, four, five, we, like little Hans. But for Freud, the interesting thing is how retrospectively looking back adults kind of their memory works over and in the distortions in in also kind of a uh, in the omissions distortions and in a kind of way sexualizing the histories uh the, the memories themselves looking back there's a lot that to there's a lot that freud uses like to try to to work through um it's not necessarily the the experiences themselves, it's like the reactivation of them, right, in the memory. So that's what Freud will give us when he looks back on the Wolfman. Uh, is there anything you want to add at this point before I go on about some of, this, some of the stuff that happens in his childhood? Since you reference memories a little bit, Freud directly references screen memories as a concept in the piece. And obviously there's the book or the little at least essay, right, screen memories as well. Yes, very famous. Digging into the screen memory concept a little bit might how much relevance you feel like that has, but I don't know. That's something that caught my eye and I thought might be something to Yeah, kind of you know, a moment um, or two on. You know, Freud Freud uses the term here kind of as a throwaway. He doesn't really even highlight it as a con- as a concept. He either assumes that we know what he's talking about when he uses it or he uses it in a way that he thinks is commonsensical. So that's how gotcha. I would approach it. Okay. Where um, my, this is the new Penguin translation, which has some things to, um, that I think really improve on Strakey. The only con I find is, well, two. One, it's not as footnote heavy because it is more for a general audience. So I do like the footnotes that are provided by Strakey. Um, but the other thing is obviously that it's, 
it's not a it's not the standard edition and so for scholarly purposes it may not be as, as fun but my translation of the word is decorinerung it's a fun one my translation is cover memory which i don't know i would have stuck with screen memory because yeah. what because what the memories are um what what freud is using that term for is that they literally like project a visual depiction mm -hmm. so it's it's generally a, a memory that's that's a that's a visual scene kind of like uh you know when leotard talks about right the theater the theater and and yes exactly so it's a representational schema well the schema is not a good word for it it's a representational uh visually representative projection like on a screen right right so i think screen memory is good better than cover memory but cover memory is is not fully bad because what freud wants to say is that there's obviously something underneath right yeah. that it's that is covering over mm -hmm. uh there's some deeper stratum there's a you know what abraham and turok will say it's you know it's indicative of a of a crypt that is holding secrets or you yeah know, right like be, especially like the egyptian tombs or like right you know yeah. there's false walls there's trap doors etc mm -hmm. so that's how i always understood screen memories and the two screen memories he talks about um one is where the he and his sister are with the english governess and her hat blows away and then what was the other one sorry i uh, and then the other one is he and his sister are walking behind her and she says, look at my little tail and tails will become very important. Right. Right. The wolves with their tails, they have fox tails, the, the wolf, the different, the two different fairy tales about the, haha, <laughs> uh, the two different, not, not the pun, the two different fairy tales about the, the wolf losing a tail. In, in different stories, which we'll get into. But those are the two big screen memories he apparently has. And Freud says, well, that's that's castration, right? Um, he'll go further. Yeah, because the tail gets pulled off by one. One of the, well, the one of the yeah. significant dreams, right, is the that he has is the the kind of wolves in the tree, which I think are that image that's, is like the most that's the most famous one. Right. And I, I think that he even admits that, um, let me see, where did he, he says he published that dream elsewhere. I want to see where it is. Fairy tale material in dreams. Okay, so he, he, he had already talked about this dream five years prior to the publication of this in a little essay on fairy tales and dreams. And, and obviously, I think in for the rat man and for the wolf man, that would be a, a good source material if if any of you guys want to look at that at some point. But yeah, so we we'll, we'll build up to that to that wolf dream, and and in a certain way, it is um, it's both a dream and a screen memory in a certain sense. Right. right. Yeah, I was going to ask. Yeah, and because what Freud will say beneath this dream is the primal scene. Mm -hmm. And for Freud, the primal scene is is not necessarily primary in the sense of first in incidents, but it it harkens back to a 
again, another, uh, it supposedly depicts a, the original scene, uh, the primordial scene of witnessing the parents copulating, right? And Freud kind of even mentions that, you know, many times, especially in smaller homes, although we know this is a wealthier family, so it wouldn't necessarily have to take place this way, but, you know, the, the child will be in the crib, in the, the bedroom with the parents, right? And so they can watch over him and take care of him, like if he needs, you know, whatever, just to make sure that it stays alive, right? You know, um, yeah. and, and yet they'll, they'll also, because the child is not, yet forming memories or aware, right? It's, it's not uncommon for them to uh, have sexual intercourse while the child is still very, very young uh, and present. And so Freud wants to kind of indicate that, that he, he, will, he will go through all sorts of, um, you know, analytic and interpretive feats, really impressive feats to, to, to make this claim that this dream is uh, representing this this primal scene, but we'll 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 build up to that. Was there anything else you want you want to talk about before we start talking about like his sister and his family life and stuff like that? Um, I guess more so just to point out the the witnessing or of the parents having sex. What's significant there is the like manner in which they're doing it, which is the from behind the the doggy style. Yes, the doggy sex, style where the man the woman is bent over, and the man is is behind like like the animals obviously recall like that's somewhat lending itself to the whole wolfman imagery yes. that freud's going in yeah and it, and, it, and it ties in with the the animals uh i mean freud is is cataloging as i said a whole menagerie of of animals right. in the wolfman's life we have stories about at an early age he's you know kind of like uh there's the stereotype of pulling wings off of Flies, flies and beetles and so but he's like caterpillars etc he's yeah. crushing beetles and caterpillars yeah. and at the same time also developing even a fear of these small insects right he's when he is a young age he's chasing a, a striped butterfly and he suddenly you know becomes horrified right so there is there's also this he is horrified at horses and horses being beaten it'll make him scream but at the same time he will he remembers participating in beating horses yeah uh and that becomes important because even without going into the case history we can kind of foreground this where you know before even saying that the phobic animal whether it be the horse or the wolf stands for the father which is what freud will say even before all of this we should remember like in the rat man that there is this this attempt to master the drives there's this attempt to become active after a period of having undergone and being passive right so this fear of horses and this cruelty this aggressiveness uh, uh against them at the same time it, this trade-off is this attempt to try to master that the phobia just in a rough sense before we even start to talk about what it represents symbolically we should think about what it represents for the drives in this terms of, in this need to uh, master and this will become important when we start talking about his his little sister who may be in a certain way the the first the first wolf so 
I already kind of mentioned him as an adult, which is part one, which is what Freud kind of goes through in part one. And then we start to hear about, we start to hear about his mother and father. They have, they have illnesses and complaints of their own. The, the mother having what my translation calls gynecological complaints, which could be, you know, we could either say it's, it's early menopause. We don't know. It could be, it could be more so, you know, could be pains involved with uh, menstruation. We, we're not really sure. We're not really told uh, about that. We, are, we do hear on the father's side that by the age of three or four, he remembers that early on his father was very loving and attentive. And then for, for whatever reason, um, probably due to just mental illness running in the family, which may not necessarily be genetic, but he becomes morose, he becomes depressed um, and is withdrawn. And we do hear that the mother uh, really doesn't have much to do with, with the child, right? So there's something here that we have to remember kind of uh, like with the rat man, where again, we have another case where we have with the Ratman, I would assume he was middle class, right? Because he had different, he had different, you know, ner wet nurses and governesses, whatever. Same, same here, right? This, but I think that the Wolfman is even higher class than that, right? That, yeah, um, he's his parents are at least at an early age are well off. They have two country estates. Eventually, they sell those and and move to the city. But it's, but they have they have a lot of servants. They have a lot of people to to look after the children. And, um, and since the mother's not there, that means that she's not around. That means that the Wolfman's primary caretaker is not her. It's, it's a nurse that is lovingly called Nanya, I believe is. Right. Um, N-A-N-Y-A. Yeah. Nanya. So, so she takes care of the children and, <clears throat> By the time around when some of the crazy shit starts happening, three to four, they uh, the he and his sister also get an English governess, who it's it's interesting to think that the 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 mother and the father, they, I believe the first time around the age of three, they they take uh, their daughter, his sister, on what like a six week vacation or whatever, and they leave him with uh, Nanya and the English governess, and when they come back, he has changed radically from a good, well-mannered, well-behaved little boy to to one of the, a terrible toddler, right? He's, he, he has these outbursts and these scream, and he screams and, uh, and won't, he, you know, he won't obey. He's, he's beset by all these problems. Now, the parents think that it's the English governess. Yeah. The parents blame her. Freud thinks that that is unlikely, right? That, that Freud will start to pinpoint his attention to the sister to such an extent that he gives a whole two or three pages dedicated to talking about what happens to the sister. And I'm kind of building up to that. But we should remember, I mean, we should kind of think about the fact that Nanya is you know, this, this nurse is 
is really the primary substitute for the mother. She is basically, for all intents and purposes, his primary mother figure. And the governess is kind of a rival to her, right? Uh, the governess is is not doesn't like this um, this Nanya. Calls her a witch. They seem to not get along very well. It could be a class thing, right? Because Nanya is probably lower class as a servant girl, uh, as the servant caretaker. The English governess is not obviously of the same class as the Wolfman's family, but is probably higher up, educated, right? And given the role, and she has a different role than Nanya. She's she's meant to teach the children, I assume, English among other topics, right? She, in a certain way, would stand in more as a father substitute, right? Bringing down the law, education, upbringing in a different sense, right, than, than Nanya. But we hear, but Freud says, you know, the reason why this tension creeps in is that the sister too doesn't like Nanya. Sister too seems to uh, call Nanya the same thing, right? Call her a witch and these other things. And her being called a witch is very important for when we see the Wolfman for the first time act out towards her. But before we get there, any questions before we talk about the, the sister? Because I think she's a fascinating character and we really have to understand her role to start to even put together the Wolfman's crises, his trauma at an early age. Hmm. No, I don't, no, I don't have anything yet. So a, a few more things. Freud himself says that Nanya, this lower class Russian nurse, had lost a son. And that's important yeah. because that means that not only is Nanya a substitute for the mother who is absent. Right. Yeah, the wolfman is a substitute on the reverse. That, yeah, That's right. The wolfman is a substitute for her lost child. And I do think that um, we should also note that the wolfman, in talking about his transformation from a well-behaved child to a to a kind of raving out of control screaming right. uh you know uh, the transformation into the the werewolf yes we should we metaphorically should right we should see in his in the way freud describes it that the wolfman seems to indicate he was so well behaved and his sister was so precocious that my translation says people used to say he should have been the girl and his sister the boy <laughs> oh so we have to we have to we have to keep that in mind. Yeah, that burns him up. And the father also takes, uh, I believe, a greater and has a greater affection, right? Yes. Like it's it's particular. Like Ford makes a note of that. That yes, he does. Sister, because she has an academic skill level, or like she's got a certain aptitude. Yes. That gets praised yeah, yeah. above his his acumen. The, the Wolfman seems to indicate that before the age of language acquisition, right? Before the age when all the shit starts to fuck up. I mean, if we, it's really just basic Lacan to say like, when the Wolfman enters into the symbolic, oh, shit, yeah, shit yeah. goes fucking <laughs> wild. Right. Because it is that that critical age of three to four that it's not the age at which he, at when he sees the parents copulating, right? Which is one and a half or, or earlier or one and a half to two and a half. It's really right. when language starts to, starts to work together that everything falls apart for him. And right. one of it being that, you know, we, we can imagine that as a child, his father is very attentive because 
the mother's not around. And so if, if there is a, a parent involved at all, it's the father. But by the time that he starts to use language and show that he's not as clever as his sister, but we also see that it's almost like he's the girl and she's the boy because we, he, she is described as tomboyish, uh, right. precocious beyond her years and stuff. The father seems to have more and more of a predilection for her. Right. That start to treat her as um, we even get this notion that that she is a at first she's a rival and and later they uh, when they get older they seem to come come yeah, together. But, but, yeah. yeah, but we'll get to, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Um, was there anything you want to say about the gender confusion? Because I thought that that was very fascinating. Uh, this notion that before he transforms, everyone keeps saying that he should have been a girl and she should have been the boy. I thought that that was. If I remember correctly in the reading that she was the aggressor in terms of their sort of mutual sexual ex exploration. Yes. She's two years older than him. Because she like basically gets out his penis to play with at one point, right? Right. So that's this is where we get into the. And I don't know if that's stepping, that's going, jumping too ahead or, no, no, or we'll, not. We'll, we'll, we'll jump into that in just a second. Uh, first, we're told that. First, we're told that the parents think that the the kind of war, the, the war between the English governess and the uh, the caretaker, Nanya, is what causes the boy to yeah. have problems. Right. Freud doesn't really buy that. And he notes that when the parents get back from their vacation, I think it's six weeks. I, I It doesn't matter. When they get back after a fairly long vacation and they see the boy transformed, they send the English governess away but his behavior doesn't get better. Yeah. And Freud says, well, that means there's something more fundamental going on. We're then told about his birthday is on Christmas, like we said. And I do think it is kind of funny that he, like one of the first things that ever sends him into a rage, which is not getting presents. Yeah, exactly. Cause he's got the Christmas birthday. So he wants, He's expecting presents for both his birthday yes, that's right. and Christmas, but he's only getting one. He's getting a lump sum. He's getting one gift. Yeah. Yes. Which uh, is, it's just funny that that same kind of logic has persisted this long, just in, in yeah, terms of yeah. across, you know, obviously this is Russian, you know, what, early 20th century, assume, you know. Or, well, yeah, let's see if he's writing late this 19th, in, Late 19th century, right? He says, Freud says he writes this up in 1914, 1915, it doesn't get published till 1918. But if he's writing this in 1914 and 1915, and he obviously had already seen him a few right. years before that, because he's he's already writing an essay using dream material from 1913. So even in early 20s. So yeah, I think that the Wolf Band, we can safely say, was probably born probably born at the turn of the century. And well, the Wolf Man is born, I think, 1878. I believe is the oh date. really yeah. Yeah, he lives almost 100 years, according to Google. Jesus. Okay, so then the timeline's a little bit different. Or it might be 86. I actually, I still have the the. Yeah, let's, let's look at see. Yeah, so no, he's born in okay, 86 18, and 86. dies in 1979. So yeah, he almost, yeah, he almost lived 100 years. That's yeah, seven years shy. shy. Um, so if he's born in 86, when he sees, when Freud writes the case history in 14, he'd been 28. And he came at so, 18, right? He came at so 18 because he had 20s, the... He's probably seeing Freud. He gets the gonorrhea. Um, 
Yes, and you're right. That, his that, 18th uh, year, correct? Well, his 18th year, he has gonorrhea. And then it's a few years later, in between, after this gonorrhea infliction, mm-hmm. uh, it's in between that that he starts to have uh, starts to have some problems. Gotcha. But yeah, so just kind of funny that over 100 years later, that same sort of, you know what I mean? Some, the more things change, some some things don't, you know? Yeah, and, as far and as you that know gift, the desire for the gift, which right is right. quite and, interesting and, and, in a lot of the stuff that, so that I want to get one into. One gift but. probably helps concretize in his mind this this notion that he is kind of a Christ figure, right? You know, being you know Christmas and his birthday being kind of uh, in, in his mind it, they 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 combine. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's see. So yes, he is mad, and particularly he's mad at Nanya, who only gives him one gift. Now you'd think he'd be mad at his parents. You'd think it'd be him being spoiled, him being upper class. He deserves gifts and whatnot. But he torments Nanya. He doesn't torment, as far as we know, his mother. And again, this shows that she has, in his mind, she is the primary. Yeah. She, she yeah. basically is the mother, the, the substitute. Yeah. She's the one that she has the libidinal investment, the cathex. She's cathexized for him as the mother. Mm-hmm. Because, I, and I don't know if you want to, if I'm jumping ahead to discuss the urinating incident or. Oh, we, 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 we can. Well, just wait, wait. since we're on the topic of her the and her like substitution as the mother we get this scene, right, that he describes where as a young, younger boy, I'm assuming he's older, I don't recall the age. I think this is right after his sister starts to, quote unquote, seduce him. We have to take that in a very broad sense. She's, she's, she's shown her butt to him and had him show it to her, his butt to her. Her she's, front bottom, yeah. She, yeah, she plays with his penis, you know, and, and so sort of inducted him into the, Freud, Freud makes a good point that like at such an early age, at an age when potty training is still going on with with the I don't even know if you call it masturbation, but with because it's not it's not clear whether or not, you know, he his, his, his he becomes erect every time. Well, right. I don't know. It could, could be could be just fondling. It could be could 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 get to uh, stroking erect members we're not really told but freud says that this is a hypercathexis of the general region in a time when the body is still more or less yeah. autoerotic it was still more or less polymorphously perverse we haven't entered you know at the age of three four definitely haven't gotten to the stage where the genitals are the the main sort yeah. of erotic zone so so what freud kind of says is the sister is is following him and and in introducing him to this to this adult sexual conduct and it's around that age i think it's probably still before the age of five that he yeah he he's pulls out his his little penis and and he uh, he pisses on the floor yeah and he pisses on the floor in front of nanya who is yes. his mother's substitute and freud says of course that this is the boy attempting to seduce the the maid I don't right. know what to call her. A maid, a, a nurse seems wrong. I mean, because it stands in for like a mother. She's just the mother substitute, the this mother figure. He's trying to, I don't even know if seduce is the right word. It's just, it's just so clumsy, but he's trying to induce some sort of sexual encounter 
with this woman who is charged with taking care of him. Mm -hmm. And we should remember the sister and the governess calling her a witch because what does she do? She she gives him a threat, which yeah, she threatens castration. Not uncommon, but she says little boys who act out like that get a wound. Get a wound, right? Like the front, the front bottom. (laughs) Right, they get they get a wound. They get castrated. They they it gets it gets taken away from them. And we should remember that her being called a witch, that threat comes with a kind of, you know, it's almost like a magical curse or hex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's a it's it's like symbolic, but like fused in a in a sort of magical way. Okay. I just wanted to point out the yeah, whole, you know, obviously this relationship to the wolf, the marking of territory, etc. And I think in the alpha wolf would mark its territory as right by by urinating that's interesting that's a good point that's a really good point to make about how animals generally wolves dogs cats, right so it's a it's an animals. alpha it's an alpha move to piss it's hey i've got this dick i'm gonna like i'm marking my territory that's, that's right that's the seduction that the wolfman attempts i think that's a really good point and it's it's the point it's a point that Guattari would probably make in and lacan this notion of of, of delimiting a territory Right, territorializing um, ex- effectively with the yeah, with the object of, of desire. Right, and yeah, and he's doing it without really knowing what he's doing. I mean, he's he's trying to involve her in in in, in the kind of games that his sister has introduced him to. And it's kind of interesting, as, like in that yeah. sense, how you know you see this with Schreiber too. This sort of, and it almost even makes me go to this uh, like schizoanalysis in the sense of. The sort of truths, and I don't know, you know, that obviously like a small t truths that these patients can are like elocuting, right? With Schreber, he has this particular, very interesting knowledge of of God, right? Yeah, it's very intimate knowledge. And it goes back to this notion of like in the, you know, I don't even know what period to be really accurate, right? But there was a certain reverence for the, for the insane, for the, you know what I mean? Like perhaps ancient Greece, right? Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Like Socrates talking about the daemon and and madness. Like the Oracle, right? The Oracle, there's a certain, there's a madness. There's a, they have a connection. The mad have a connection to the divine, right? That's a good point. Yeah. That is a really good point. It's kind of interesting in the way that these sort of truths are slipping out (laughs) of, out of the mouths of babes, right? Whether it be the Wolfman yep. or the Ratman or Schraber, well, I guess Schraber was already quite a man at that point. But you know, I, I just think that's interesting. Visual, I was thinking you may recall this movie. There's the movie Wolf with Jack Nicholson. And I don't know spe- if I, I don't know if I've seen that. The specific scene that I recall, so it's Jack Nicholson is the star. Michelle Pfeiffer is the female lead. James Spader is sort of the antagonist, or one of the antagonists, the primary antagonist. So Jack Nicholson's character is bitten by a wolf, werewolf, presumably, gets infected. And then so he has this rival. He's in a works for a publishing company. And I can't recall if he's like just a publishing agent or whatever his role is. But he's got a younger rival that's sleeping with his wife. And so they're both in the bathroom. And Nicholson just like turns over and pisses on James Spader. Gotcha. Yeah. Which I thought was interesting in a couple of routes one is it is kind of recalling 
this scene of delimiting territory mm-hmm. with with the urine and obviously the wolf man w- werewolf connotation but also the marking of the territory sexually in the maybe in the film is perhaps like this homoerotic there's a homoerotic side sure. to it yeah no Which I, I, I think that same homoeroticism is present with the wolf man oh yeah and his father we will definitely get to that is what kind of maybe that's another element of why i was thinking about that movie no that's good I, i'll have to look it up and and see if it still stands up yeah um, i mean it's not bad it's uh christopher Plummer is isn't it it's it's a decent movie sounds like a good cast yeah it's it's pretty it's pretty decently done you know it's not a great movie but it's, it's pretty good it's a decent watch before we get to the sister i mean the before we get to the sister at least in her history the first thing that we're told about his relationship to his sister is how she would torment him before we hear about the seduction they would they have this little book it's probably like little red riding hood is what freud says and it has this depiction of a wolf standing on two legs kind of leaning forward with the hands outstretched probably i think with the mouth open right with the jaws the the teeth exposed and his sister would periodically i guess whenever the the you know malicious streak wanted to come forward that drive to torment him she would open the book to that page that depiction and he it would it would set him off it would cause him to scream you know violently wildly uh it would terrify him so she's already terrifying him before we learn about any of the sexual exploitations going on and she took great delight in this right as we as freud points out so as i said she's kind of in, a, in several ways the first wolf we encounter da, 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 da. let's see that, that also reminds me like what i already talked about hey real he quick what uh... the horse was beaten but on certain occasions he remembers enjoying beating horses himself I don't know if that's a fantasy or not. As a as a young child, how, how often would you be? In yeah, a exactly. To do yeah, that? to beat a horse. Yeah, that seems like a practically uh, not a very common. We have we we have to have that attitude towards everything. Not only that the patient recounts to Freud, but that Freud notes down in the sequential order and is, you know, he's chronologically, not even necessarily linearly or you know, chronologically, but he's, he's trying to give us these details. So we have to be doubly skeptical, both of how Freud is setting this up, but how also the patient is giving material for Freud to work on. So, yeah, I mean, whether or not that's true that he beat horses or took joy in them, it's the fantasy itself. It's the, it's the remembering that whether true or false, that uh, is important. What relevance does the one or several wolves have to the Wolfman case, if anything, or if that's getting too far afield? Let me know. No, I'm just kind of curious. I, I would, I would say really because quickly, you said she was the first wolf, so right. That's kind of. I say that because Freud will want to take the phobic animal. First of all, he's reducing it from the whole menagerie to wolves, so he's yeah. not he's not animal man. He's Wolfman. <laughs> and Freud himself points out that why is it that that Sergei, his patient, the Wolfman, why is it that the phobic animal isn't a dog or a cat, which would be regularly seen? Right. Well, why he is does it a wolf, t- yeah. which would not be, 
which which he gets from books, which he gets from these fairy tales. So it's an imaginative element. It's it's a it's a totally fan phantasmatic, a fantastical element to the phobia. It's not something. It's not a, it's not an animal he would come into contact with every day. Besides yeah. a horse, though, because because on the other hand, he might see horses in the street all the time, and so we have to think that you know a horse is being beaten. I think that Freud answers his own question by point, putting this way, that it's the, it's the animals that are heard about and that, that lurk in the imagination, like the wolf, not something that you would see every day very often, or even you could go a whole life without encountering a wolf in, 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 in real life, especially if you're living in the city. So that's one element that Freud, Freud reduces the, the animal kingdom down to the, to the wolf I mean, I don't think Freud ever calls him Wolfman himself. Right. I think that's just kind of a popular. So you can't necessarily blame Freud for that. But he will reduce the many phobias that involve insects too, not just horses, to the wolf. But he will, on the one hand, he'll say in the depiction that of the dream, which we'll get to in a second, where it's six or seven wolves. Freud will unpack why it why the six and the seven have importance because one of the fairy tales is uh, what it's the wolf and seven children and six of the children get eaten up uh, so the six and seven actually gets comes back to the children which at the end of the story the wolf's belly is opened up the six children that were eaten get taken out they get replaced by stones and then the wolf dies at the end. So the six or seven wolves, Freud actually finds a logic in why six or seven. Yet still, at the same time, Freud will reduce the wolf. He will ask the question, why six or seven? He'll answer it with the fairy tale story, but then he'll reduce the phobia uh, to not just the wolf pack, several wolves, but to one wolf being the father. And I think that's where that's where Deleuze and Guattari continue their critique of anti-Oedipus, continue their critique of global persons, which we find in anti-Oedipus to a thousand plateaus in that second chapter, that second plateau with one or several wolves and saying, everybody knows <laughs> that wolves travel in packs. Children <laughs> know it. Yeah. Why is it that Freud seems to reduce the multiplicity down to the sort of overcoating singularity yeah, of the yeah, father? Okay. Right. Okay. Gotcha. Interesting. And in Freud himself, I think, you know, you could, I think he's liable to some of that criticism, but I think at his best, one of the words, one of the notions, one of the logics that we have to pay attention to in Freud is always substitutes. We always have to pay attention to how the mother and the father is never, it's never just mommy, daddy, me. It's always mommy, mommy prime, mommy prime, prime, substitute, substitute, substitute. It's always these logical chain of substitutes for the mommy, for the daddy, and for myself. And it's functioning in this logic of identifications. And so I think that with Deleuze and Guattari, if you want to go further with them criticizing Freud for reducing multiplicity down to, to, to uniqueness, it's precisely that he has a logic of substitutions and yet at the same time functions in a way where they all can be reduced down to a global person like the mommy and the father. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what they critique him for is kind of straddling a fence. Yeah. It was yeah, kind of interesting too, like the sixes and sevens and like 
that oh yeah that english phrase at sixes and sevens i wonder if that because wait strakey was strakey was british right i believe so if, if i remember correctly i think he was british that's a pretty old idiomatic phrase about confusion disarray i don't know i just wondered you, if there was any kind of like relevance at all in that we would have sense. to we would have to look and see if that there's a there's an idiom in german Freud's astute, uh, pretty, pretty damn good. And so if there were a phrase like that in German, I would assume yeah, he, he, probably would, he, would have, he would have woven that in if he found it. Um, I would like to talk about his obsessive compulsive stuff, but, you know, I want to get to the sister. And one thing that I, one thing we hear about is because at first it's anxiety hysteria with these phobias, which always residually i mean he never fully gets over that that's still a residual symptom for him it's after the age of five to ten right after this age of seduction that he starts becoming obsessive compulsive and some of that is is around christian religious imagery right like uh, he would have a ritual before going to bed where he would have all these these figures I assume saints and virgins, whatever, uh, these, these pictures of saints and virgins, I assume he's either Orthodox or some sort of Catholic, right? I was, you know, being Russian. And so he would go around kissing these figures, whether it be paintings or figurines, I'm not sure. Yeah, the images um, of the saints to ward and, off this. Right, so to, to sort of, he would have to do that before going to bed. And part of that being he's terrified to sleep. He's terrified to have dreams. Right after having that, the dream of the wolves and the the tree staring at him, he's terrified of of dreams, and so the the obsessive neurosis, the obsessive compulsive neurosis, functions in a way to allow him to sleep. Right at the end, preparing him for sleep, and we have to imagine that the the saints and virgins, whatever these male and female figures, that there's millions of them, I assume, and I mean virtually millions of them in, in the Catholic church. There's, they're like Pokemon, you gotta <laughs> catch them all. They also, I assume through the faciality of these saints, they function as substitutes too, right? Mother substitutes, father substitutes. So we're told about that ritual and we're told that like the rat man, he would have blasphemous thoughts related to these religious figures. He uh, my translation says he was obliged to think God swine or God crud. We'd have to look at the German. I don't know if Strachey's has the German there and maybe a uh, footnote. But um, And then he says that he was journeying to a German spa. He was tortured by a compulsion to think of the Holy Trinity when he saw three piles of horse dung or other excrement lying on the road. Yeah. I think it's brilliant because in modern postmodern art, we have the, the famous uh, cruci the crucible in the, in the jar of piss. Right. Piss I mean, Christ. So, yeah, piss Christ. So already he's got in God we trust. Right. I mean, he's got a, <laughs> seeing the three piles of horse shit and thinking of the Trinity. I think that's that's, that's just beautiful. <laughs> that's, that's wonderful. I love it. Yeah, that is um, that is quite good. I think even further. Well, I don't want to necessarily go there now, but like I don't know. I, to me, that whole money and shit stuff yes. that goes to libidinal economy is. We, kind of the we, more interesting shit for me in the whole case, but well, we'll definitely I think in that, that sense, like the in God in God we trust in terms of the shit and the Trinity is yeah is kind God, of a funny like chance chance uh, or like coincidence, right? 
I mean, it's it's you can also see it with with Schraper. I mean, God, Amos. Oh yeah, because shitting is such a and, important and, God, and and him him being too stupid to shit. Right. Right. Or or whatever. Him having to him having to shit and and the lavatory always being occupied. Right. The babies coming out of the ass too, yep. and the shitting and the labor and the dual connotation of labor with giving birth, like the act of giving birth, but also work. This is that's the kind of shit that was getting my mind and in the childhood, these interesting directions. The childhood but, theories of sexuality, there's a point at which not only is the anus like a cloaca, but you know, so it can it, you can have babies born from it. But as a consequence, that means that boys and girls each can have babies. There, you know, it's only later that the sexual differentiation of procreation and, and reproduction becomes a logical yeah. truth. Well, here too, what's another interesting kind of parallel is the Lydians and the Athenians and the ejaculating in the ass into the quote unquote birth canal. Right. Of the anus, but the inability to reproduce that. So I don't know. There's, that's the kind of dynamic that I see here that that's the stuff that was really fascinating to me. It's kind of like this libidinal theory. That's not all that central necessarily to the Wolfman proper, but I don't know. This kind of, it's kind of weird that Freud has all this other shit in this case. You can well, kind of take all these interesting loops from. I, and you can imagine that there's so much more material that he leaves out. Yeah, true, right. So when Freud includes some things and doesn't necessarily come back to them, I don't think he's forgotten them. There's just so much. And uh, like like when I said uh, with the Rat Man, I was I was surprised that he never came back to the rat man having fantasies of killing his brother's fiance. Yeah. He, he really only mentions it and he's already analyzed and interpreted it, but it, it's, it's just, it's just one more little notch, one more little uh, ch- link in the chain. So, yeah, I mean, here, the last thing I guess I would say, or one of the last things I'll say before we talk about the, the woman, another obsessive compulsive ritual he has is when he would see Beggars, cripples, and old men. I think right. this is interesting. He would, bre- he would exhale vigorously, yes. right? He As would, a way of trying to ward off the condition of being. That's right. He would inhale deeply and exhale. And, and Freud ties that into this, not, to this cruelty towards animals. But, you know, we have to think of a, a there's, there's several things knotted together in this ritual, right? Yeah. Seeing beggars, cripples, and old men, because you know, uh, there's class distinctions, right? So he's upper class there, obviously lowest of the low. But sexually too, he's only aroused right by the, like the, all of his libidinal cathexis is for servants too. Well, yeah. And that's, that's very good to point out. So there's a class differentiation. This is a consequence of, of his caretaker and of who rejects his seduction advances with the the pissing scene and threatens it with castration, but also um, it's tied up with his relations with the sister. Incidentally, had you read, did you read seduction by, have you read seduction by Baudrillard? Rain no, I was going to buy a copy of it, but they're, they're, wildly oh, yeah, yeah, expensive. Yeah. they're quite expensive. Okay. Gotcha. I was just I mean, curious. Does, is it, have you, have you looked at it? I have not, but I've heard good things and, and Baudrillard himself does draw quite a bit from Freud as well. I, I was just wondering like, if, if he was meaning seduction, at least in one sense, in Freud's sense or not. 
Yeah, I wouldn't I mean, be surprised. Yeah, it's definitely going to be riffing on Freud's seduction, if if nothing else, you know, putting his own spin on it. But yeah, and I would say that the ritual when he sees uh, when he sees the the beggars, cripples, and old men, it's not just class distinctions. It's right. also a question of of the able body, right, and of the body as machine, and specifically the horse. We know how horses uh, yes, yes, exhale, yes. but also wolves, right? With like the three little wolves. Yeah, huff and I'll, huff and I'll blow your house down. So that that respiratory drive yeah. of of inhaling deeply and exhaling, that is kind of mimicking, you know, these these beasts. Part right. of part of the bestiary that we see in Wolfman. So there is a a kind of becoming animal there as a way of warding off. I mean, what do you do? To horses when they when horses get crippled what happens you, you put them down right? yeah you know so that could be another thing uh well the note i mean you have the idiom workhorse right oh he's a workhorse there you go yeah that's true which goes back to labor and money and shit and giving right. birth and giving and gifts and all that kind of stuff at the end of part two which is what we've been looking at of the medical history. Freud says we have to go back to childhood even further and deeper. And he, he says, uh, obliging us to take a detour through the prehistory of the patient's childhood. Another word that I always alert on, not just the word substitute, but it's also the word detour. My main point is just when Freud uh, mentions detours, we have to think about how, like in dreams, the sensor is passed the uh, kind of detour away from the unconscious, right? These, it has to be a derivative that is associatively distant enough from the original repressed that it can kind of roundabout make a, make a detour to, to sort of pass those defensive mechanisms and resistances okay. and these other things. Okay. Here, and, that's, obviously, and that's what the whole, and so you're saying that's what the whole, the mechanism of the breathing is, is it an example of that, right? I mean, I think that, no. that, that, that all of these, uh, that, that, that what Freud, when he notes these things, I think he is noting these associative derivatives. You know, I think that when he, whenever he, when he's talking about a detour, I think that what he really means is, for example, with the governess, the governess is blamed for all of the Wolfman's problems by his parents. And mm -hmm. I think Freud's like saying, that's too direct a link. We really have to take a detour around this. It's like a straw man, right? We have to take this detour around this scapegoat to find the underlying mechanisms and symptoms. So whenever Freud talks about a detour, I always I think it, it's, it is linked with this logic of substitutions, right? Because what else are these substitutions for the mother and the father functioning than a way of for example, in that case, detouring around incest prohibition, right? Because the mother being the first sort of uh, the first prohibited, you know, right. global person. Yeah, the prohibition within. against incest. Yeah. So, um, so now we get to seduction and its immediate consequences. This is part three. And this is where we will hear about the sister and one of the things Freud says is, you know, um, there's a footnote. I'm not sure if it's, uh, there's a footnote at the end of part two where he says, 
You know, it seems logical that in treating a patient, we would talk to their family, we would talk to their friends and get stories and get some clues. He says, this is, turns out to be a terrible means to go about it. It seems counterintuitive. You would think that Freud would be like a detective, right? Would be talking to uh, people around him. But he says uh, there's several things that, that go wrong. Not only are their own memories and their own prejudices biased against the material and against what's going on in the psychical life of the patient, but also you undermine the, you kind of undermine the relationship of trust and you, you kind of go to a different authority than that of the, the patient himself. And what really he's saying is that if you try to, if you try to do a detour around the patient himself to the, the surrounding milieu of people, you ruin the transference in a certain sense. I think that's how I read it. You dilute it and you, um, it's the same as trying to take notes during, during the, the, right, right. the session. You're sort of unconscious. I think we use the metaphor of looking at a sort of look in quantum mechanics, right? Looking at. at yeah. The a, double slit experiment. Yeah. So once you, once you, you kind of bias the, uh, you, you kind of bias the patient yeah, with by, your observation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, by, but when you start taking notes at a certain time, uh, and you're not evenly suspending your attention throughout the, the patient's narrative, you unconsciously influence them to think that what they just said has, has more worth than what they said five minutes earlier or five minutes after. Right. So it, it, it kind of has a snowball effect. So Freud kind of says, yeah, you know, at first I was looking at the English governess as the as the central focal point. And he's like, eh, this doesn't really work. But we do get out of it that he, we have these screen memories involving her. One where she says, look at my little tail, right? One where her hat blows off and the children are very happy about that. So, you know, he's associating castration with these screen memories. But he does say that that so much of what the Wolfman is giving him as material seems internally contradictory and temporally crazy that this is where he brings in the notion that we have to, in analysis, have reconstructions or constructions in order to move forward. And he says that there's nothing wrong with doing this because he's found that if they're wrong, they don't really do any damage in the analysis. So he does give himself a little bit of a, a leeway in speculating about reconstructing things. Now, this may be self-serving, but I think that what Freud is kind of saying is part of what we, what we do if we are detectives of the unconscious is we have to try and build up the material in ways where we have to fill in some gaps. We have to, uh, we have to kind of sometimes a straight line isn't the the closest, you know, direct route. We have to take detours, as I was saying. So one of the subjects of his dreams, as he says, is aggressive action on the boy's part towards his sister or the governess, which resulted in energetic rebuke and punishment. This will become important. I think, I think this, this notion of acting out in order to be punished Right, the sadomasochistic to, element of it, yeah. It, we can call it that, but it, it really becomes important when we go back to what we said about the Wolfman, where he recalls he should have been the girl and his sister should have been the boy, the father taking preference over the, the sister. 
you know, preferring her over him. We see later that one of the desires, one of the wishes in his acting out is to get his father to be involved, right? To, to involve himself in, in right. the, because in there's the, tantrums. the, there's the sexual desire on the part of the Wolfman towards the father. Yep. That he's trying to elicit the beating as like a, that is the act, the sexual act or the, whatever the, the motivation, the motivating factor yes, is this I underlying mean, sexual desire for the father, which goes, obviously there's a little bit of a overlap there in terms of Schraber and the, right. This whole notion of homosexuality. Schraber and Fleshig, Schraber and God. Right. Um, the, yeah. And, and I mean, here too, with God, the father and him identifying, the wolfman himself identifying with Christ, right? Yeah. Christ right. being Christ being killed at the, you know, with the seeming acquiescence of the father. Right, yeah. Why, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God. So this is where shit gets <laughs> real, I think, in my opinion. This is really where Freud is... Perhaps at his best and sometimes at his worst, if we if we only focus on Freud relentlessly pointing to sexuality as as a traumatic kernel in childhood, if if we if we don't give him a charitable reading and see that he's he can't just be reduced to that, then I think we we do him a disservice. But at the same time, we have to be aware that sometimes he can use it instead of as a hammer as a cudgel you know but just like with the rat man when when shit got real and, and nasty this is this is where the sister is shown to have undoubtedly changed the course of his sexual life right we we mentioned some of this where the first memory is they're in the bathroom she says shall we show each other our bottoms right which kind of you know, which probably would be where he first notices that her little penis is is super small, or it's it's a front bottom, as he as he calls it. And and so we hear about his sister. The children were playing on the floor in one room while their mother was working in the next room. Again, she's absent. She's present, but she's absent. Right? She's she's right over there, but she's. So she's like included in the scene, but as not in it, you know what I mean? The mother's absent and she's a passive participant. His sister starts playing with his penis, saying incomprehensible things about Nanya all the while, as if by way of explanation. She said that Nanya did this all the time with everyone, the gardener, for example. She would turn him upside down and then take hold of his genitals. There's a lot there including Nanya in the scene who, who isn't there, but including it in the activity, obviously indelibly associates her with the sexual activity, mm -hmm. which we can of course link to his acting out later when he pisses on the floor and tries to seduce Nanya. As the alpha male. Yes. The alpha and, wolf. Right. And so his, and so Freud says that these memories of him acting out are really fantasies because we see that the actual events involved, he is a passive participant. His sister is the active one. And 
says, according to these fantasies, he had not taken the passive role towards the sister, but on the contrary, had been aggressive and wanted to see his sister without her clothes on, had been rejected and punished, and thus fallen into the rage recounted so insistently by domestic tradition. So, yeah, he's punished. Like, the events undergone, he's passive, but in his fantasies, he has become active in this acting out. And we can say that part of the means, not only, as you as you pointed out really, really well, pissing on the floor is, is marking the territory. And so it's, it is, it is a kind of becoming active of this seduction and trying to become an active participant. So with, with this, with these fantasies, Freud uses this metaphor that he used in the rat man already, where he says that these fantasies and this way of reworking and this way of making active, what was passive, he says his fantasies thus corresponded exactly to the creation of sagas by means of which a nation, which later becomes great and proud, seeks to conceal the insignificance and misadventures of its origins. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that Freud is using this metaphor of nations rewriting their history in such a way as to distort, but also to kind of elevate and aggrandize. You know, Deleuze and Guattari will say that the unconscious is populated by peoples, by nations, by races. Yeah. And and Freud kind of points a little bit to that here. I think Lacan would agree with some of that, at least insofar as the unconscious is structured like a language. What else are sagas and oral histories than sort of the perpetuation of the symbolic that precedes us and kind of structures us in terms of in terms of one form of identity. And this is a point where Freud says that the sister is the main antagonist or protagonist, whatever you want to say, the main uh, component in the in the sexual seduction and not the governess. So the governess is just kind of associated in the the struggle for power between her and and the uh, and the maid or the the caretaker Nanya. It's really the sister. He says that the the hostility to the um, to the governess is really because she is she is uh, disparaging of Nanya, the 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 mother substitute, right? Now Freud produces um, evidence that the sister seducing him wasn't a fantasy. At least he, for him, he takes it definitively that the sister is the actual culprit and not just the culprit in fantasy. When No, is this told, where we do yeah. get a scene, I believe we get something or some mention of an older cousin that references mm-hmm. the sister performing right. something similarly where she pulls out their penis as well. Yeah, it says in a conversation about a sister, a cousin more than a decade older. So this is a boy who is who is at least in puberty, right? right? A teenage boy. Yeah. I had told him that he could remember very well what a forward, sensual little thing she had been as a child of four or five. She had once sat down on his lap and unfastened his trousers to take hold of his penis. We, we have to let that sink in. <laughs> I think that this is I don't think Freud does enough here. I think Freud could have said more here about what the sister is doing. First of all, as a boy of 10 years later or 10 years older, he would have been big enough and should have been circumspect enough to not allow this to happen. 
Right. But he does. And the yeah, way we got that, a little we got a little rep man vibe with this guy, with this cousin. Yeah, that's right. And we don't know how the actual event happened. The Wolfman himself could be retelling it in a way that is expedient because it makes the cousin he identifies with the cousin in a way, right? Because right. he's just as passive. We have to imagine several things. One, that however the cousin fits in here, being seduced by the little girl, something is there like a f- castration what in the mean? well, in the sense of the woman being gra- the active grab- participant, being, yeah, and being the active participant and grasping the penis, and that sort of and that sort of threat that the that Nanya makes right about. Uh-huh. The, cast, the castratory threat. I don't know if, if there's yeah. anything there in terms of sexuality and like, because that's right. The the wolf typically has the connotation of like you know in the cartoons, of right? Being like, the predator, right? Yeah, the the night wolf image, right? Of right. the sexual predator, the yep. alpha, the alpha seeking out, right? Like the, taking charge, taking an active role in sexual matters. Rather than right. the, pa- the passive that he sees within the mother in this role, not the role, but the in the, the sexual position, the sexual position, the doggy yeah. style, the where the doing it from behind position where she is the the mother is the passive figure. The father is the active right. figure. And part of this, you know, you could you could attribute to Freud's concept of penis envy. Right. Right. Which we have to take more well, broad more yeah. broadly than just the biological organ is you know i mean like a, a base straightforward reading would be that the little sister has or the well it's his older sister but uh, the sister has a fascination with the penis because it's it's something that that she wants herself to have isn't know. there a sort of castration for women in the sense of in the context of patriarchy yeah, uh, I mean, in the diagram... In the, like in, in a the, certain symbolic, maybe in the symbolic function or what have you, right? Right, in the in the, in the Lacan sexuation right. diagram. Now, in the Lacan sexuation diagram... Yeah. There is no woman that is not castrated, right? Okay, there's, oh, so there's no women... Okay. There is no woman that is not castrated. There is no one. Whereas on the male side, on the masculine side, rather... Because it's not about biological sex. I, I mean, thought it was all there was. There's not a man except one that is. There is one hasn't there been castrated. One. There's the yeah. primal father who's not been castrated. That's right. But all other men have been castrated. But it, it's also that all women are castrated as well. Is what you're saying? No, it's it's like a double negative. There is not one who is not castrated. So it's not the same thing as saying they're all castrated. You, you know what I'm saying? Like it's it's. There is not one that is not castrated. Right. Okay. It's a kind of a not all thing. The gotcha. Patu. And it's that logic which then says that, you know, in, in the diagram that they can sort of have access to the to the phallic in a non-masculine mode. If you look at the the diagram of the the canceling out of the definite article la femme the canceling out of the, the definite article, like woman with a capital W canceling that out. Thereby there is this logic where they can, uh, it's not even a, appropriate, but it's almost like dress up the, the lack, right? Rather than wanting to, to be it as being and having it, you know, that's one way to put it, but it's kind of wearing the lack itself 
as a mask rather than trying to trying to trying to be the phallus and be the dickhead and walk around. We'll, we'll, we'll get back to that, that diagram. But yeah, I think that there's something going on here with that, with this question of castration, with the question of penis envy in a symbolic sense. But there's also this question that at an age of four or five with her doing this, this is not, I wager that this is not some sort of independent autonomous activity based on her curiosity. Something has happened in There's her There's a trigger. Past. Yeah, okay. Something has, has primed her right. to, to do this. It's not just about sexual curiosity and the sexual theories of children. She has been, this is learned behavior is what I wrote down. Hmm. She, she, something has happened to her, whether it be that cousin. Right, right. You know, yeah. the story is that he was passive. Yeah, we're not 100% sure whether it be what that exactly cousin, occurred there, whether, right? Whether it be the gardener. Right, that we just heard about Nanya supposedly doing this with uh, when she's fondling the wolfman's genitals. She mentions that Nanya doing this with the gardener. Perhaps the gardener did something to her and she's projecting onto them, whether it be the father himself who, in preferring her as his favorite, potentially did something incestuous with, with the daughter. We don't know. And all of this is speculation, but, but yeah. something happened to this little girl who was so precocious, not yeah. just intellectually, but sexually. Something happened to her that she is offloading onto the wolfman and her becoming active. Yeah. I, I think with Freudian logic, she at some point was a passive recipient. Right. Whether in fantasy, highly connected fantasy, or in some sort of of scenario probably repeated and this is where it gets tricky and this is where the the logic of seduction as real event becomes clouded but i think freud could have said a lot more about this little girl of four or five being so advanced in her sexual exploration and taking it as a as a triviality that this is something that all that all adults do how does she how does she know that well in my opinion she was she was introduced to the sexual life of adults very early on and I mean, is offloading that. It might be too neat and tidy, but he does, you know, maybe it's the reference to the discussion of the, of Nanya or the governess that would stand the men on their head and grab their penis. Right. Yeah. Like one um, wonders if there's maybe, well, cause that could be a, a passive observation. Like, I don't know if that fits within the scheme of yeah how he assumes these things work, but. Yeah, I, I, I do think that that's right. But I mean, I guess it doesn't matter. It's all sort of speculative. So we hear about how the sister later in life comes to, she's boisterous and tomboyous as a child. She's two years older than him. She is intellectually uh, precocious and smart and also sexually precocious, as we just said. We are told she favored the natural sciences as an avenue of study at the same time produced poems of which their father had a very high opinion, which becomes important later because. Yeah, the sister after, passes away, right? After the sister poisons the herself, passes? after the sister uh, poisons herself on a, she ends up, she ends up withdrawing from society and saying she's not pretty enough. If we had a Freudian case about her, about the sister, we would have said that this is part and parcel of this reactivation of, of a childhood trauma 
But in her 20s, you know, she's smarter than all the, the suitors that try to get with her. She rejects them and makes fun of them. She then withdraws from polite society uh, because she thinks she's not pretty enough. So we, we see that there's a bisexual arc or a kind of lesbian homosexual arc. And she goes off with this older woman on a trip. She comes back and tells these stories about how the this woman subjected her to the worst kinds of activities. We don't know if we assume that it's sexual. Some of it is sexual in content, but we are not told uh, about it. And yet at the same time, she goes on another trip with this older woman. And it's there that she commits suicide, that she poisons herself. We can only speculate that part of this is her, you know, her sexual identification with the father or with whatever masculine seducer. And she's fallen in love with this woman who probably entertains that idea, but at the same time, given societal restrictions, that's not a possibility, blah, blah, blah. I mean, we can only speculate, but something happens where she kills herself in her early 20s. Now, the Wolfman will first repeatedly tell Freud that she shoots herself, but we learn that she actually poisoned herself, and he's identifying his sister as this poet with this other famous poet that he loves and and mourns uh, because that poet shot himself in the, you know, shot himself. And so he's duel. like associated. Well, he was killed in a duel, I believe. Oh, well, there you go. That's even more interesting. You know, we're, we're told about an uncle who also had some uncle on the father's side who was eccentric and, 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 and met, and met an early death and had uh, obsessive compulsive neurosis. So as I said, you know, this family, I kind of mentioned yesterday, the picture of the painting, uh, the little, little sketch that the Wolfman draws of the tree with the wolves. I mean, part of this is kind of, we can take it symbolically as, as a picture of the family tree. And there's a bunch of fucked up, you know, mental illness in the family, right. With these different wolves, you know, who knows if the uncle was involved with the sister being seduced in early age. Yeah. Maybe, Again, uh, maybe they were friends with know. the rat, the rat man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The rat man was, was a friendly uncle. That's right. Just still remembering your, <laughs> the last, the last rat man episode. You're like, I was like, what do you think about the rat man stuff case? I think he's a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah, dude, he's, he is a fucking piece of shit, but he's yeah. fascinating. Right. After we're told about this, we're told that they, at first she's a rival, right? And, and, and part of it is first she's a rival, but then when they get older, they become friends. He, his intelligence starts to catch up to hers. And they both start to oppose their parents, which I think is interesting, right? A little bit of rebelliousness in your teenage years. And it's at this point where it says from the age of 13 onwards. So by the time of puberty, they start to become friends. And it's also at this time of puberty where he tries to seduce her and she rejects him. So we see this, this attempt by the Wolfman to become active, to become sexually active with the person who had rendered him passive at an early age and she rejects him. We can assume at this age, perhaps it's because either she, as I said, has already started to go down this path of female homosexuality herself, 
Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know, but that's kind of intimated by Freud detailing the the trip with the older woman. We're also told that it's perhaps we could think it's perhaps because now incest is symbolically a thing, and so they're at an age where she that prohibition means something to her. Combination of the two, at the very least. But she rejects him, like she's rejected the other suitors that have tried to to woo her. And what does he do? What do we learn that he does? Well, he turns his sexual interest towards a servant girl, a young peasant girl. Sorry, it's not a servant in the house. So it is a servant, a young peasant girl who shared his sister's name. I mean, that that right there, you could you could unpack easily. It's right on the face of it that this peasant girl is a substitute for the sister. Yeah. And as you said earlier, we will see from then on that's that becomes his uh, his sexual object of choice, right? The, these young peasant girls, these girls of lower station. And um, I don't remember when I mentioned it, but in Antiochus, towards the end, I think in the last chapter, they say, you know, if you're doing a if you're doing a dissertation on uh, psychoanalysis, on Freud, whatever, it's much better to take a very small topic like the role of the governess, the role of class and and servant girls than it is to do these big overarching themes about, you know, about identification or the the big trends in psychoanalysis, ego analysis, blah, 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 these, you know, the different diagrams and of, of um, the topographies and stuff. It's much better to focus in on these small topics where you see the libidinal, the economic, the, you see class issues, you see, you see these relations of power is, you know, in a certain way. So we see that very clearly here. And one of the things that Freud mentions is that it's not just class or Freud doesn't even mention class, but it's not just that the the peasant servant girl is, um, is of a lower station, but she's also not as intellectually adept as his sister. So to a certain extent, he's looking for bimbos of the lower class because they will, well, I mean, in a certain way, their rejection, if it happened, wouldn't be associated with the kind of rejection he feels by his sister. So there's a lot of stuff going on in, in the next page at the there's a kind of a climax, so, so to speak, when he finishes telling the story of his sister's death. I will just say a few things. One, the way that he describes the sister made me think of Ophelia and Hamlet again. We talked a little bit about that last time because Freud quotes directly from Hamlet to Ophelia, but the way that Freud lays it out, it's like it is as though the story is Ophelia seducing Hamlet and not the other way around. I won't go too deep into that. I just had that thought. I mean, that is sort of true in a sense. Whenever she begins to kind of Polonius directs her, the father directs her to try to ascertain, okay, what is the truth of, of Hamlet, right? And that's what spurs his whole. Right. We see that, when he learns of his sister's death, he says at first he doesn't he doesn't feel any 
he doesn't feel any compunction, right? He he doesn't feel uh, he doesn't feel sad about it, and he has to force himself to like pretend. Well, doesn't on... he he reads the poem, right? Doesn't he read the poem by the poet who had died in the duel, and that's when he's able to cry? Yeah. So he he travels to where his sister died because she died far away from home on that trip. He travels there. He seeks the grave of a great poet whom at the time he idealized and he, that's where he breaks down. Okay. Gotcha. That's where he starts to cry. So you see that association with the sister and the poet. And apparently the father had compared his dead sister's poems to those of the great poet. So that's yeah. the, the link. That's the connection. The father is the one that cathects it. And as you said, he keeps saying that, his sister shot herself when in fact the poet was the one who was shot in a duel. So that kind of cover, that kind of distortion is important. I will say there is a link here between the, he makes the joke. I say it's a joke, but it's kind of a morbid joke where he says, um, he pretends to be in mourning when he hears about his sister's death, but he makes the joke about now he can be the sole inheritor of the, of the family fortune. So that rivalry was still kind of in his mind, right? This notion mm -hmm. that she was the true heir because she had the she was more masculine than he was and had her father's love. Right. So there's inheritance. And there's also this heritage, right? Because the poet whom the father associates with the sister is two generations past. So this question of, of, of not just inheriting money, but inheriting a kind of prestige from the father, which is the most important thing. And so I think that that's another thing that we could say about libidinal economy and the, the wolfman acting out to try to get his father's attention is it's not just the sexual component, but it's also this component of attention, right? This component of wanting to be loved in this roundabout way, in this detour way of being punished. So being punished or this fantasy of being punished by the father isn't, isn't merely sexual. It's got a... I love that... I love that he says that he doesn't reject his sister and her advances. He, he rejects the person, not the thing. And I think that that, again, is important for what we discussed earlier about global persons and incest, that it's the person that's uh, rejected and not, not the thing, not the, not the activity itself. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess we can't go through everything but we kind of have to go i would like to work towards this dream a little bit as a way of closing because we get some more indications about castration like he's getting um handed canes of sugar and the the governess giving it out to the children who is kind of cruel says that they're chopped up pieces of snake. He remembers his father chopping up a snake with his walking stick. We hear about the story Raynard the Fox where the wolf tries to catch fish in the winter, uses his tail as bait and it freezes and breaks off, right? And obviously 
that's another link with the wolves and the tree having fox tails. We already talked about the other tale, the seven little kids where the, the children were pulled out of the body of the fox, which makes me think of the story about Cronus, right? Cronus is told by the Oracle that uh, one of his children will, will take his place, you know, ruling the Pantheon. So what does he do when he, when Rhea has children, when, when the earth goddess has children, he, he eats them, right? So he eats, he eats Poseidon, he eats Hades. And then Rhea on the third child gives him a, puts a stone in swaddling clothes and gives it to him to eat and protects Zeus. And of course, Zeus comes and kills him later and castrates him, throws his, uh, his testicles in the water, the foam, out of the foam rises Aphrodite. And then of course, later Aphro Athena bursts out of Zeus's head in kind of immaculate conception. So you see there's, there's this whole, you know, mythological thing there. Anything in your notes you wanna, you wanna go over? Like I thought it was interesting the how he points out that the phrase is all, or it's always said that the woman gives the man a baby, never the reverse. That also think is interesting and especially with labor and gifts and Christmas and gifts as well. Like there's this whole libidinal money, economic, sexual, <laughs> libidinal economy sort of thing in the background of the whole thing. So I don't know how much we want to get into that because I feel like maybe that's even a different another episode worth I, I think, of discussion. I think that would I think that that would that would lead into the yeah that that would that would be good to focus on for the next we, yeah. we kind of we kind of had to build up right some of the pieces of leading up to we had to build up the prehistory right as, as Freud called it so I mean we could even I don't know if you want to end there I, I really don't have much else or anything else myself I will end on what we've talked about a little bit where Freud tries to lead the path from the sister to the, the mother substitute, Nanya, the caretaker back to the father, mm -hmm. right. From the passive attitude towards a woman to the same towards a man. And yet in doing so, he was able to connect with an earlier spontaneous stage of development. The father was once again, his object identification having been succeeded by object choice. So uh, I think that this is what we see with, as he said, kind of Nanya's being not, what Freud does here is, is kind of striking to me because he will say that Nanya, the caretaker, whom for the whole case we've been thinking is a mother substitute, Freud turns that logic on his head and says she's, she's a father substitute. That in the same way that he tries to provoke his father to punish him he was also trying to get Nanya to punish him by pissing, by the on, pissing on the rug. Right. And Freud... Your fucking Freud, rug, dude? Your fucking yeah. rug? I mean, it really <laughs> tied the room together. And it's... And Freud does something too. He queers the wolf man, or he really queers his own uh, sexual theories because what he will say about the wolf man with this homosexual object choice of the father now at, at this stage of the sadistic masochistic stage the anal aggressive stage freud queers his own theory by saying the first 
object choice, the first one to find a substitute is not the mother, it's the father for the masculine. This is something that's very fascinating and it's not necessarily always consistently hypothesized by Freud in this way, but in this instance, it definitely is. Whether he wants to apply that to all sexual development for the masculine side is up for debate, but in this case, it's definitely relevant insofar as the mother for all intents and purposes is, is absent, right? It's not the sort of absent names of the father as Lacan talks about. Now it's the, it's the absent mother. And so the first libidinal object, the primal one is, is the father for the wolf man and not the mother. And I think that that kind of way of querying the unconscious is very important to to highlight that would be the thing that i would emphasize before uh, before we we kind of broke off for today what do you think about that did you notice that 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 i mean we, we you did you did seem to point that out earlier i mean you mentioned even early on the like oh so no you were talking about oedipus and how oedipus functions and it's not the sun that yes that i guess what would you say with like Oedipus she, begins and, in the mind of the father. Yes, right? yes, it's, yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, the that's oracles. Tell I wanted to Lias, go back to. Yeah, oracle tells Lias that that they will have a son that will that will destroy, will kill him, that will take his place. It's very similar to what Cronus hears from the oracle. So Oedipus doesn't begin in the mind of the son. It's it's passed on, right? It's passed down. It's inherited, so to speak. If we want to talk about the logic of herit- of inheritance and heritage that we see with the sister rival passing away, right? He becomes the sole heir. And so, yeah, Oedipus is, is in the mind of the, of the father first as a fear, as a threat. And it's, it's kind of imposed then on, on the son. And it's the same, I mean, it's kind of interesting. It's, it's like in Totem and Taboo, it's the brothers that band together against the father, but in a certain way, the father makes the primordial father, but the primordial father in a certain way sort of begins that way precisely by hoarding all the all the materials all the all the means of exchange particularly the means of reproduction by hoarding the women he kind of institutes that almost demands that murder of him and that and of course they cannibalize him too right because they you gotta gotta eat the eat the father you gotta incorporate those uh those traits and I found it very strange. I found it very interesting that the father, what the wolfman seems to want and is acting out in his tantrums, which always heighten in intensity when the father is around, right? Obviously that's the object is to get the father to, to punish him. But what does the father do? His father doesn't beat him or scold him. Even he, we are told he, uh, tries to calm him down by throwing cushions from the bed up in the air and catching them again. The only thing that I can unpack from that is symbolically, it's this notion that the father is juggling various things at the same time, Mm -hmm. rather badly, one could say, but tried to juggle in a way to amuse and, and, uh, and sort of, uh, you know, what is he juggling? He's juggling his own depression. He's juggling 
this wife for all intents and purposes with her gynecological problems that is absent probably from not just uh, the children, but perhaps from the sexual life. What, what, what are the, what are the business endeavors that the father is, is involved with that uh, probably are also weighing on him with the financial solvency of the, uh, of the class they're in? What are the things that are keeping him away from his children? Uh, what are all the duties that he's trying, what are all the different hats that he's trying to wear, right? Husband, father, head of the household. We don't yeah. know, but he's obviously not a violent man, even if he is depressed. And one can say that the depression precisely in pulling back from, if not both children, at least his son, because he seems to like the, the daughter, at least, you know, the Wolfman just wants the father to pay attention to him and be involved. And, and that is interesting too, because it shows kind of the emptiness of the of the paternal function then, right? This, that the authority, the law, the punishment of the law that he wants to enact upon himself is, is empty. It's, it's nothing but a show. It's just a spectacle. Yeah. And the emperor has no clothes sort of thing. Right. Interesting. Well, that has it. That has like political implications, I think. Oh yeah. Especially if you're going in the direction of anti-Oedipus. One narrative element of the dream, the dream that we have with the wolf and the trees is that he says that there are six or seven wolves and one of the wolves starts at the bottom that I guess what's the I guess the part of it is that the I guess we presume that the wolf man himself is in the tree or because we have this visual of the wolf one wolf like them kind of jumping onto the backs of one another to gain access to him in the tree if I remember correctly well that's 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 a fairy tale that's apparently, a fairy tale. apparently a fairy tale there's a carpenter there's a carpenter who, because I thought we had his a tailor. Idea. A tailor. A tailor is working in a shop. A wolf, an old wolf, jumps through the window, and the tailor grabs him by the tail, and, and the tail comes off. Right, and then and then he's out in the forest. The wolf comes back with with a pack, and mm-hmm. he runs up a tree, and then the the wolf recognizes him, and says, "That's the fucker that." You know, um, yeah, it took my tail. Yeah, and then they they stand on each other's backs to get to him. But then the tailor basically says, "Ha ha, you don't have a tail." You know, he, you know, I I took your tail, and that then they he runs off. Well, that yeah, that scares off the wolf in a in a weird way, right? Because mm-hmm. the story doesn't really make much sense because he recognizes who violated him, but then it's the by calling attention to the to the act of castration, so to speak. Yeah, that's when the the wolf remembers. So there is this like repression memory thing going on in the fairy tale. But the I think that in the dream that he has, the wolves are, he said the only action in the narrative is, is his window opening. So we can imagine okay, he's gotcha. in bed and the window opens and the wolves are all staring at him. Right. In this fixed pose. And apparently this is a source of, of terror. Gotcha. Um, okay. Yeah. And... There was the discussion of the castration as it related to like one of the wolves that the other wolves are jumping on the back as a representation of the mother or the father. And yeah. I don't remember specifically which, right. what the case was. 
that the old wolf without the tail, right? So all the masculine positions are castrated paradoxically, right? But they, uh, yeah, the jumping on the backs, yeah, that's that becomes the active position. We'll definitely unpack this dream, which which really is is the crux. It's the hinge of of all that Freud does with the with the case. And you know, with Deleuze and Guattari, one could say that part of part of the violence being done to the to the multifariousness of this of this dream, but also this constellation of symptoms is that it is it does reduce it down to the father. I think that if we're charitable to Freud, kind of what I said, it's interesting that the, that, that the father is that the as I said, the sexual object is the father and not the mother in this case. So mm-hmm. I think that that at least was well, sort of, sort of has some Schreber element to it as well, right? Because we don't hardly get discussion of the mother and Schreber either that I no, recall. We don't. No. Part of Schreber's ideation that he is a chosen one of God is precisely the the grandeur, the I mean the megalomania that he has that he thinks he's a great person and that's why God chooses him is also this identification with the father who was famous throughout at least Austria for his his books about rearing children and and his devices right yeah his devices and left to his own devices (laughs) yeah so the greatness of his father because we we keep hearing throughout the story and reason why Freud tries to reduce the wolf to the father is we keep hearing the story about you know, when the wolf man, he remembers when he grows up, the only thing he wanted to do was to be a gentleman like his father. And I think that word gentleman too, we have to, we have to take it in the broad sense of being upper class, right? Being literally like a, a like a landed gentry type. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think so. And that brings in territoriality again, right? But I think next time we definitely want to we definitely want to go into the dream. We want to go into the stuff about anality that you brought up. I think that that's very important. I think that it's, I think that it's important too that the, the last thing I'll say just as a, and I'll, and I'll let you get the last word. The notion that Again, we hear about all these animals, right, in his life. He's, you know, his father is proud. He was happy to see all the sheep that are being kept on the estate. And then one day there's a pandemic and the sheep start to die off. And a student of pastures comes to inoculate them, but it only makes things worse. So there's there's this trauma there with all the sheep being killed off. And, and Freud says this is why the wolves are white, right, because wolf in sheep's clothing, literally, right? The white wool. We also hear about, he learns about, he learns language to distinguish horses based on their intactness of sex. I think that's cool, right? Like, yeah. So he learns what the gelding is. Uh, Steer, you know, well, in Texas, you'd say steer Steer would be cows. (laughs) Right. But uh, I don't know. Uh, Gelding is is a word for. Yeah. Gelding um, is horse related. There, there might be another name for it, but who knows what the Russian is. 
So he learns about horses and, and castrated, uncastrated, and that obviously ties into his his phobia around horses being beaten, but also his fantasy of beating horses. There's, we've talked, now, next time too, we wanna to talk about foreclosure or for Verfung, right? And which becomes very important for Lacan because we will have the, he will have this hallucination that his finger is cut off, right? And hanging from the skin mm-hmm. um, in which Lacan and Freud both tied a castration. And obviously in the case of Schraber, we've talked about foreclosure specifically, but we'll have it here too in the Wolfman, this notion of what's rejected in the symbolic or not allowed entry in the symbolic returns in the real. Um, Reemerges. Yeah. And, but with castration, unlike repression and foreclosure with castration, there's a Freud uses a specific term for leugnung which is disavowal. And the word for leugnung literally comes from the word for lying. Like you take lying to such a degree that the way it's, the way it's carried out is, you know, he, he sees, he watches uh, two girls urinate, his sister and her friend. He was bright enough to have been able to grasp the true state of affairs from this alone, but instead behaved in the same way as we know other male children to behave. He rejected the idea that he was seeing confirmation here of the wound with which Nanya had threatened him and explained it to himself as the girl's quote unquote front bottom. This decision did not mark the end of the subject of castration. However, he found new indications of it in everything he heard. This is really important, I think, for me because it's it's the kind of Lacanian notion um, I know very well, and yet, right, I know very, very well, but, right, so it's this, it's kind of, the knowledge is there, but it's being kept away in a kind of, Freud likens it to, to like blind spots in the eye, mm-hmm. right, or, or, in the not, periphery, yeah, yeah, it's like fuzzy, what's the word he uses, I don't remember the technical word for it, but it's, um, it's these like little fuzzy areas in, in the eye. So it's like, it's there, but it's, but it's being kind of blurred out. Uh, we can imagine the, like with Isabel Millar's book where she has that beautiful reading of the black mirror episode on, um, on the archangel. There's a kind of world going on there, a kind of disavowal. So even though he explains it away, he kind of rejects the idea. It infects all sort of all the other signifying chains. So it's kind of like lying to yourself, you know? I think that that's super important for understanding uh, the logic of, of castration. And Verloignan is important, disavowal is important because, you know, we get the story about the wolves, blah, blah, blah. He said he had no fear of wolves as yet, incidentally, at the time of these investigations. So the fear starts later. It kind of incubates in the unconscious with the, the knowledge of castration, it's kind of like the unconscious, when, when Nietzsche talks about the death of God, right? It's how, how long it takes to make news in the unconscious. It takes a long time for yeah. that negation to snowball and to, and to take root, or, it, or not to take root, but to, to actually blossom into, uh, into fruition. So it's the same with, um, 
you know, these investigations of castration precede the phobia is kind of what Freud's pointing out here. I think that we have, this is such a dense case. I would even say it's even denser than the, the rat man. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, um, by far. Yeah, for sure. And it's very, a lot more convoluted. Certainly. Yes, it is a lot more convoluted. And I think that we've taken a good stab at some of the stuff, especially, I mean, I would love next time when we talk about shit and a little economy and stuff like this, I mean, we've already talked about Schraber and uh, his inability to shit or his, his question of an animal being too stupid to shit, right? Schraber's too stupid to shit. We, we see that the wolf man with his kind of blasphemy and his association with Christ, he wonders whether Christ also shat, right? We'll have to kind of go into some of that that stuff and definitely link it to the anal eroticism, right? We'll, we'll definitely have to build up to that. That would be, I think, the arc we should follow next time. Don't know if this is worth, worthy of it, but doesn't Deleuze have that whole Saker Masak piece? He has a it's book, really yeah, good, it's, right? it's called Coldness and Cruelty. Yeah, it's um, the one book my wife has ever read by Deleuze. Is, oh, nice. Is the, the Soccer Masak, the Coldness and Cruelty, which is in the English edition, it's followed. I don't know if this is true in French, probably is, but it's followed by Soccer Masak's novella or short story, Venus and Furs. And um, Interesting. We could definitely take a look at that. There's a lot of times that Freud spins on this kind of sadomasochistic element of the Wolfman too, or am I? No, am you're I totally right. Correctly? No, you're totally right, and and we see it in the Ratman and in the Wolfman and in. I actually meant, I meant to bring Schreiber. this up earlier this week, but I the, forgot. The sa- well, Sigur uh, One of my favorites. I think Cole's would be great there because Deleuze does fault. Freud and Freudians in his wake for the, for him, sadomasochism is a gross generalization and shouldn't be thought of as a, as a single complex that in fact, for him, masochism has a, has a totally different logic. He will, he will elaborate this based on the notion of contract versus even if we, you know, if we, if we think about like sod with Kant, just sod's notion of it's kind of, you know, it's not a contract in the same way in which people are on equal footing, right? It is, it is more of a political extremist categorical imperative. You know, you don't, you don't enter into a contract with the, with the moral law within you. It's, it's, uh, it's like, you know, it insists to a certain extent. So it's really fascinating that Deleuze got on Lacan's radar for writing the book on, on soccer, Mossack, the coldness and cruelty really, yeah, he, he liked the, it. He was impressed by it. He was, that's right. Before the work on anti-Oedipus. Yeah. So you could see that too, this, this, we read that seminar, right? Was that seminar? I think that might be in like seminar seven. I think that's right. So we'll have to, maybe that could be something we could talk about with. I know I read that part or he references Deleuze, but I don't recall if it's specifically that work in seminar seven. Oh, I think it is. I think, you know, because before he's fascinated with anti-Oedipus and trying to get Guattari to to spill the beans, hey, what are you writing about? You know, he's, Deleuze gets on his radar for Coles and Cruelty and 
I assume at least some of logic of sense because logic of sense at the end of the book goes into a um, kind of Lacanian exposition on the phantasm. So Lacan might, might, that might've also been on his radar before he's writing with Guattari. It's really interesting too, that I see to me, I thought that Proust and Sines had some Lacanian psychoanalysis, which was sort of interesting in reading that, I was reading a little excerpt from uh, how, what the hell was the, the series of uh, Guattari's interviews, soft subversions. Yeah. So he's got the little section in soft subversions. It's a, it's a little interview and it says titled Lacan was an event in my life. In that piece Guattari himself intimates that Deleuze wasn't really that enamored with Lacan. I can imagine. Or hadn't, didn't have a great deal of interest in his work. <laughs> Which seemed a I, think, bit... I think his interest in Lacan was probably more for the linguistics and structuralism question that he was trying to deal with. Which makes sense. I mean, that's the stuff that I find most interesting. Yeah, I mean, like, obviously myself. they come to, to Lacan in totally different disciplines and totally different angles. Right, right. You know, Deleuze wasn't a student of Lacan in the, in the sense in which he was training to be an analyst. And... You know, so I think from that perspective, yeah, Guattari is right. But that's also why their assemblage works, right? That's why they each bring something really unique to the table besides their different personalities and their different working styles, just their background and sort of where they see the application of theoretical threads applying and uh, pragmatically and practically. Yeah, I mean, like they... I think that's why they work together so well. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that Guattari said that Deleuze didn't really, he wasn't really a follower. He kind of did his own, his own thing. I think that's true. I think that's definitely that's true. I think it was sort of inter- kind of cool. I think, that's, I think that's definitely true. And at the same time, as I've always tried to explain, I mean, logic of sense is one of my, I just love how it's put together and it's, and it's wonderful. And uh, the, the sort of the, the exposition of Lewis Carroll and then jettisoning Carroll for Artaud and this elaboration of uh, Artaud and the first time Deleuze brings up Body Without Organs, which is obviously Artaud's um, sort of his coinage poetically, not necessarily conceptually, but poetically. Yeah. Um, but it's the end of Logic of Sense where he kind of reaches this impasse, right? He he goes down this Lacanian rabbit hole, not to pun on Alice in Wonderland, that he seems to hit a wall. And it's really, that's also what primes him for the breakthrough with Anti-Oedipus and Guattari three years later. So even if he wasn't a student in the same sense, he definitely was, was primed. He definitely was a, was sort of, you know, Lacan definitely was was a part of his his toolbox. I think yeah. Guattari just was was already had already broken with Lacan, at least in in a certain sense. In a we know stories about about some of their falling out, about the Lacan dicking him around to publish his article. You know, when he could have published it under Bart's journal. Uh, right. You know the Lacan wanting Guattari to pay for a session in a car ride, you know, just like weird shit. And, and also Lacan not sort of not 
promoting Watry to the rank of the inheritor, but choosing Jacqueline Miller, you know, like we, we know a little bit of this stuff. I'm sure it was, I'm sure there was much more to it as well mm-hmm. that Guattari having studied under him for what, seven, eight years and probably had having studied him and read him for much longer. I think he was yeah. ready to, to move out, out of the shadow and became disenchanted with the role of the, the way in which linguistics was mobilized to grant a kind of scientific aura to psychoanalysis that he felt was, that was stultifying, you know, to a certain extent. I mean, but that's, that's how these things work. I mean, you know, you see, we see in the Wolfman case too, Freud himself is still working through some beef with, uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. With Adler people, and Jung, with yeah. Adler. Right. I mean, with straight in the Schraber case, it's, it's really Jung that's the target in this case. It seems much more that Adler is biting at his heels, you know, and proposing theoretical venues for approaching the unconscious that he thinks well, on the one hand, he, he feels like it diminishes the role of sexuality. Usually these breaks with these his students comes to that. This secondarizing sexuality at best, if not completely evacuating it in the sense of, of Jung to a certain extent. He does state at the beginning of this case that this case of the Wolfman really is a feather in Freud's own cap for the theory of child sexuality, if I remember correctly. Makes sense. I mean, I think that the rat man and the wolf man put to the test and put into practice his 1905 three essays on sexuality, which is in my mind, if, you know, if the, if the interpretation of dreams is like his, his magnum opus, I really do think that this, the next big step is the three essays on sexuality because that book more even more so than the interpretation of dreams is a polemic against victorian modes of of thinking about perversion of thinking about sexuality and its scientific investigation the way in which it's kind of this taboo that he he tries to shatter that's always interesting when Freud is is uh, is shitting on his followers for going <laughs> too far afield and astray. You know, he's trying to he's trying to reinstate himself as the as the authority figure, as the uh, caretaker. He's trying to make sure the psychoanalysis will have a future. We've talked about that in the Schreiber case, right? I mean, that's that seems to be Freud's main concern and why he starts to become polemical with these these schisms, if you will, right? He treats them as schisms when, when it's perhaps not necessarily so dramatic as that. That's a topic for another, right. another day. Yeah, I think we can wrap up there and return next week for another discussion of, of the Wolfman. So this will be Taylor and I signing off. Of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of which is This is the typical violence of information. 
violent because what happens there is a murder of the queen, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in uh, block work orange.